we exalt you and celebrate your greatness today. We say with our hearts joined in unison this morning that hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, we pray, would come. We pray your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that we are living proof that you rule and reign, dear Jesus Christ. As ground has been taken for the kingdom of God in the soil of every heart that's redeemed fellowshipping, singing these songs of worship and adoration before your throne this morning. And now we as your commissioned foot soldiers for the great work of making your name manifestly known to seek to draw inspiration and encouragement from your holy scriptures today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use this time to the benefit of the name of the Father, that we might be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and equipped with the words, Lord, and the transformed life to announce your kingdom come. We thank you for the cross. These moments of reflection every communion Sunday, may they be as fresher, fresher in our minds than they've ever been as we partake in this sacrament that you have given to us to remember your body and blood, dear Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that all the glory and praise will be offered heavenward as your people unite in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in that holy name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. What a privilege to meet together and to open God's Holy Scriptures again today. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The title of today's message is Suffering by Design. Suffering by Design. The title is meant to reflect the sovereignty of God in the afflictions of His people. And more so, and this is, will be our closing application as we transition to communion, the sovereignty of God in the afflictions of His Son. As we read 2 Corinthians from cover to cover, and we've taken some time to do that in a long extended series to plumb its depths to some degree, we've seen that Paul time and time again refers to the theme of suffering. And this morning it's an overview message, I hope, to provide in summary form some of these glorious truths in 2 Corinthians. Perhaps best summarize at least this message by the title that suffering, afflictions, pain, distress, tribulation, difficulty, hardship, even those lists that Paul uses in the book itself. We remember, just to name one, in chapter 6, I believe, when he's speaking as to the commendable aspects of a servant who brings the Word of God. And he mentions in every way great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings in prisons, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And he goes on to describe the conditions that we face as believers commissioned to bring the gospel 
both by way of overcoming truth in the Word of God as the weapons of our warfare and also by that which we are called to endure. Paul would have us know, as he had the Corinthian church know today, and more than that, the Holy Spirit to our hearts, that the suffering that we are called to endure as believers is by design. And not just by design, but it is a great privilege to be united with the purposes of God in the suffering of His Son. And Paul mentions this theme elsewhere in his writings. There's two thematic verses that I want to draw your attention to before we get to the body of this morning's message. Turn with me, if you would, first of all, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. I was wondering what might be a highlight, a theme, a verse that would stand out from the rest of the text, and perhaps I found two locations that give us some summary thoughts of Paul's message to this church. And the first one occurs to me from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You can see there that there is a three-tier hierarchy of priorities, if you will. It is Jesus Christ as Lord. And then it is others, those we are called to serve. And then thirdly, it's ourselves. Christ, others, ourself. Turn with me a few chapters over, 2 Corinthians 8. There's a testimony that Paul refers to in the Macedonian church. He reminds the church at Corinth of those who have modeled this kind of servant-hearted commitment to Christ and His body in this example. And 2 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 5, we read, Begging us earnestly, that is the Macedonian church, was begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Christ others, ourselves. Two thematic and succinct passages telling us in 2 Corinthians the of priority within the kingdom of God that Paul modeled so well and called the church of Corinth to repair to. Here in these two sections we find examples of a list of priorities for the Christian life. Christ, others, ourselves. Paul is writing to a church, like many churches today, who had this order exactly reversed. It is so tempting, especially in today's culture, within church, to consider ourselves first, others second, and the glory of Christ somewhere down at the bottom. And many of the ways we think about the priorities and many of our desires betray that kind of thinking. The Corinthian church was certainly disorderly and had this entirely upside down and turned on its head. And so Paul was writing to this church, and it would behoove many churches today to listen to his words, that we would repent if we find ourselves out of order. There's a change of tone that we find also in the book of 2 Corinthians as we get to chapter 10. 
And in the short-sighted, myopic thinking of the critics, they have often puzzled, wondering if this was two letters by Paul at different times, or if this was two authors that wrote the book. But I submit to you, in the context of what we've been studying, it makes perfect sense when we consider the basic structure of this epistle. Paul gives the prescription first. He says in so many words and ideas that suffering is by design. And he follows his prescription to the church. This is what you need for your problem with identifying the problem, the diagnosis. The Corinthian church was caught in a self-serving apostasy. May we take these words to heart. Evidently, this was a difficult this was difficult for Corinth to grasp, and even history itself records that they needed further rebuke in post-canonical works. Clement of Rome, first Clement, written at the end of the first century, addressed yet once again the church in Corinth because they had obstinately refused to submit to God's authority. They had staged a coup against godly leadership and thrown them out. They were not listening to God's words, not listening to God's words through Paul. And thus we find in their example that 2 Corinthians is a difficult but necessary message for the church of any age. And why is it so difficult? Well, I think in part because a chief theme of 2 Corinthians is the prescription to our problems is not necessarily for life to get easier. But the prescription for this church to be on the right track on their gospel mission and in their sanctification was to embrace the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. A sovereign God prescribes suffering to a church that is sick. We want to hear things like, it'll be alright, it'll get better, life will get easier, happier, wealthy, prosperous, encouraging, highs, and you know, I hope the valleys get less, the mountains run together, and we basically hope for a theology that reads like a Hallmark greeting card. When Paul was affiliated with the darkness of trial and suffering, that caused him to depend wholeheartedly on a truth that was outside of this world and outside of his circumstances. A heart and faith commitment, not by sight, the way physical man sees his future, but by spiritual sight, a trust that there was a sovereign God who had purposed his every footstep, whether it be through the valley of the shadow of death or singing on the mountain of triumph. Paul had to have that kind of faith, and he knew it was this missing link for the church that would set them right again. A little illustration for you, perhaps an example of why we need the book of 2 Corinthians these days. I was listening to an interview and something of a debate between two believers, two Christians who are firm in their faith, and a man who had recently written a book called um, Unconverted. This man was uh, very fun to listen to, frankly. He was a Christian broadcaster. He still spoke in kind of sentimental tones about all his favorite music he used to play on Christian radio stations. But in his book, Unconverted, he gave the story of how he left the Christian faith. There was re two reasons he cited in this interview for leaving the Christian faith. For leaving that culture that he loved. 
That culture that would spin these songs, that would follow certain artists, that would give an encouraging word, that would do a morning show on a popular Christian radio show. The two situations were, one, the death of one of his favorite Christian music artists, Rich Mullins. You guys might might remember that tragic accident where Rich Mullins, as I understand it, was thrown from a moving vehicle and died horrifically in a car crash. Rich Mullins, I loved his music, a faithful believer, amazingly deep and rich in his compositions to the glory of God, as I recall. The second event, and this one's more familiar to all of us, was the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. It was those two moments, those two brushes in his consciousness with tragedy that caused him to question and to doubt everything that he had culturally grabbed onto within the Christian church. A man who for decades had served in a role in some way serving at his church, at this radio station, and so on. Yet in his book, Unconverted, he told the world that he couldn't reconcile the God in his head with those two events. He didn't say the God in my head. He said the God in Scripture. I say the God in his head. My question for him, if I had the privilege to interview him or the opportunity to really hold his feet to the fire, is to ask him this question. Where did you get that idea? Where did you get the idea that the God we know from Scripture would not allow something like the collapse of the Twin Towers at 9-11 or would not suffer a tragic death of one of his own in a horrific car crash? Where did you get that idea? You certainly didn't get it from 2 Corinthians. You certainly didn't get it from the Word of God. Now, the Christian life and Christian truth is not easy. But let's not change it because it's not easy. Because there are dire consequences if you do. If we don't reckon with a God so big that He has purposes and what He ordains His children, His beloved, as well as a wicked world to go through by way of chastisement, by way of judgment, If we don't come to terms with that, then we not only run the risk of shipwreck of our faith, but we run the risk of losing the nature and character of God in our consciousness, in our confession, in our worship. We don't know the God of Scripture if we don't realize Him to be sovereign over every event that crosses the path of His own, including a Paul who suffered shipwreck, violence, betrayal, Danger, peril, sword, and sleepless nights, and hunger. Now, we don't often like to hear this. Our ears tickle for messages of an easy life, a bed of roses, the cool of the evening, walk through the garden alone, and those kinds of sentimental ideas of comfort, condolences, and convenience. Now, the Lord is faithful to bring them when His believers cry out. He is faithful to comfort us and to come alongside But we, as we've learned recently, never dictate the terms. And we better be prepared to indefinitely suffer whatever He graciously brings our way. Because the chief end of man is truly the glory of Almighty God, not the comfort and convenience of our life today or tomorrow. If tomorrow holds a tragic death for any of us, may we be resolved in the deepest core of our being to surrender to His Almighty hand. Paul says, I believe in 2 Timothy 4, I am ready even now to be poured out as a drink offering. What does that mean? 
Paul was ready and knew that the eventuality of his own martyrdom was right around the corner. And he was ready to embrace it as a gift from a sovereign God. Not to reject it out of hand and write a book called Unconverted. Because the so-called gospel he had hung on to for the rest of his so-called Christian life was something trivial, superficial, and all about us. So with that introduction, which I admit was lengthy and I apologize, however, I think it underscores our need for this message. Let me give you a heading. Our sovereign God prescribes suffering as the following. Our sovereign God prescribes suffering as, first of all, from the great book of 2 Corinthians, a call for mutual reliance on the Resurrector. The Resurrector, the one who resurrects. A call for mutual reliance on the Resurrector. Number two, a sovereign God prescribes suffering as a showcase of vicarious power. I'll explain these in due course and we'll cover a lot of ground quickly today as this is an overview message. Number three, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a bellwether of future glory. Number four, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a commendation of the servant-hearted. Number five, our sovereign God prescribes suffering to a wayward, out-of-order church as a signal of inspirational affections. And number six, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a tempering grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul opens this barnstorming book of confrontation against a church in apostasy with this message. He doesn't dance around the issue. He doesn't pretend that life will be great. He doesn't sing them platitudes that they love to hear from the so-called apostles. They paid big money. But instead, he hits right to the core. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And in summary, we can clearly see from Paul's opening admonitions that our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a call for mutual reliance on the Resurrector, the one who has power to resurrect the dead and to comfort us 
in our affliction, and through that, to be a comfort to others who are in affliction. There are those who are suffering this world over. We prayed for some of them this morning, the persecuted church. There are those of us who are facing internal conflicts and stresses and anxieties that we feel ill-equipped to bear this morning. There, There are many of us in this room who might be encouraged and strengthened just now in our faith. And the Word of God in other places, Romans for instance, declares to us that those of us who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. How can we be trained to do so? You ever thought what you might say at the deathbed of a friend? Have you ever thought what you might say to a widow who just lost a husband of 40 years? Have you ever thought what you might say to someone whose daughter or son has just committed suicide? Have you ever thought in your mind, what if I was called upon as a Christian to provide counsel and comfort for a woman who just lost her husband to persecution in one of these countries we hear of in the Middle East? I'm telling you the Word of God is sufficient. And there is a way to be prepared for such an exchange. And God gives us equipment for compassion when we suffer, when we go through difficulties It is a call for mutual reliance on the power of Christ to raise us from the dead. If you've ever felt the weight of discouragement, of pain, of sorrow, suffering, anguish, distress, you have felt the equipping power of the Holy Spirit to give you, to grant you graces, to come alongside another and lift them up. Paul says, verse 4, Who comforts us in all our afflictions, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And He comforts us in our afflictions so that, here's the purpose, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So for those of us who have ever received an answer to prayer, ever received light at the end of a spiritual tunnel, ever crawled through a valley on hands and knees and received the reprieve on the other side of the assurance, greater assurance of our own salvation. One of the reasons for the Lord bringing us through that very circumstance was that we, is that we would be equipped to have compassion on others. This is a mutual reliance, not just me suffering alone, not just you suffering by yourself, but us suffering together. The church, through its suffering that God had sovereignly prescribed, would be required, dependent on relying on each other under Christ to endure, to stand, and to be encouraged. Verse 6, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And then we see as we read further that there's a reliance on God that is by design. Remember, suffering by design. Paul says, For we so, were so utterly burdened beyond our strength in verse 8 that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that if we, that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you have never felt close to death before, if you've never felt the frightening sense of imminent danger, if you have never felt that this life 
has uncertainty at every turn, then you have never been strategically positioned to sense the resurrecting power of Almighty God in this life when He pulls you out of the miry clay and sets your feet upon a rock again. And this teaches us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. And then the message of Easter in this verse resonates for the Christian life every day. And finally, as we've mentioned before, one of the prescriptions or the sovereign reasons by design for suffering is a multiplication of praise. It is right for you and you ought to ask for prayer when you are going through difficulties. Notice verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. When God ties the spiritual futures of many of us together in prayer, when the answer comes, there is a multiplication of praise. Now I celebrate for the prayer that was answered of my brother here, my sister there, because I had been made aware of their need and joined them in a chorus of petition before our Heavenly Father to lift them up in a chorus of, of prayerful petition, asking that God would intervene on their behalf. This call for mutual reliance on the resurrector is by design what binds us together. It is one of the great and precious gifts and graces to the church to tie us in mutual dependency to Him and each other. Embrace it. Secondly, a sovereign, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a showcase of vicarious power. 2 Corinthians 4, while you're turning there, let me give you a definition of vicarious. What I mean by that word here is that when something is performed or suffered by one person as a substitute or on behalf of another, there's a term called vicarious redemption which rightly describes what Christ suffered on our behalf. But I'm telling you, church, that there's a mystery. There is a mystery of privilege that we share that is beyond words to articulate or appreciate, and it comes with suffering. And it is this great privilege that Christ has shared His glory with us. That is, we testify to Him when we endure alongside Him. What a privilege to be able to make manifest through the things that we go through what Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and following, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, again, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul is talking about a showcase of vicarious power. When we are under stress, when we find ourselves in situations where hope against hope we hang on, but there is an almost crushing, there is an almost destroying, there is an almost driven to the brink of what we can almost not even bear. But when God brings us through those circumstances, He is showing a surpassing power this morning we heard of a martyr and this is just one of thousands perhaps millions through the ages i was at a conference recently in the cities and there was what they called a martyr's memorial there and i couldn't take my eyes away from it i took a picture and i keep it on my phone i refer to it from time to time there was a record of martyrs through the ages a name and a little bit of their story And below that, there was something like a tomb and a viewing window and a body wrapped in linen. And as I looked at this dramatic representation of the martyrs who had gone before, I couldn't help but think, what was God's intentions for the death of these, His own? And when a person dies, when they are put to the ultimate test, When the question by the authorities to them is surrender or die. And they cannot surrender their faith in Christ. When it's recant or be killed. And they cannot deny their Savior. They do not deny their Savior. When we are witness to such a thing. The word of God in 2 Corinthians tells us that we are witness to surpassing power. We are witnessing a power and a faith and a strength that the human psyche cannot, be account, cannot account for. We are witnessing a depth of faith and a foundation that mere human will could never possibly represent or endure. We are witnessing the surpassing power of God. We witness it in the Scriptures, and by His grace, we witness it in our own lives. If you've been in Christ for any length of time, believer, I'm sure that you've come across what man would say in his own reasoning is good reasons to doubt him. Like the atheist I mentioned earlier. You could have written your own deconversion story if your mind and your flesh had gotten the best of you. But if you're sitting here today, in spite of that track record of trials, confessing faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of what He's called you to endure, you are witness to surpassing power. A commitment bigger than your will alone. A strength bigger than your mortal frame or your psyche, your consciousness alone. This is something inside. The Word of God speaks to it as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That will answer for us when we are in extreme distress. When our enemies are as intimidating as man can imagine, there is a reason for the hope within us that spews out of our mouth with an otherworldly force. And it is witness to surpassing power. And you need not fear, believer. You need not fear 
when you're in that situation that you will answer rightly without compromise if you fear the Lord. We are indeed meant to be as believers suffering in this life by divine prescription, a showcase of vicarious power, not our own, a power from somewhere else. We are given over to death for good reason, so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. Crucifixion becomes an object lesson that we live out as we die to ourselves daily and as we go through hard, difficult, trying circumstances. Number three, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a bellwether of future glory. Turn over, same chapter, in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may be found, may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Paul said this, in other words, some of my favorite, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you read the Bible in context as it's given, this is the kind of confession that will be sown into your soul as you feast on the wealth of spiritual nourishment from the pages of the epistles and the gospels. Not some surface level platitude and promise of self-centered, mediocre, humanistic bliss, but instead a depth of conviction that is indeed unshakable by every wicked force in this world. Indeed, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a bellwether of future glory. That is, by bellwether, we mean it proceeds, it foreshadows, it conveys news, it proclaims, it actively promotes, it advocates. Suffering is meant by God's sovereign design for us not to get too at home with what this world says is the chief end of man, is treasure. We know from the words of our Lord that where our treasure is there will our heart be also. So if your trials have instilled within you a disenchantment with what this world calls comfortable and riches, that is a blessing. If you've tasted of what this world calls acclaim and power and glory and future and hope and retirement and love, and significance, and satisfaction, and if it's turned sour in your mouth, it is a gift. It is a grace 
For the word of God says it's indeed easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And by rich man in that passage, I take it to mean one who finds contentment, identity, security, and hope in what this world has to offer and riches. There is no hope. In fact, it serves the opposite effect. If it widens you for the narrow gate so that you will not squeeze through because you're too content in this world. For us, the believer, trials by sovereign design are a bellwether for us. They remind us, they herald, they proclaim, they foreshadow, they cause us to place our affections in the next life, not too much here. I love Calvin's picture. We must walk, he said, with one foot slightly lifted, ready to step into glory. I love that picture. Reminds me of Elijah being caught up into heaven. That last step on the earth. We will be caught up one day with him, the word of God says. And death for us is a catching away. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. This world is suffering under the weight and scourge of sin. And it endures justly so the temporal and eventual judgment of the same. But not us. We've been rescued. And we will be rescued. And I'm thankful and you ought to be too when we're guided by the convicting, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, to let the work of our sovereign God through the sufferings that He prescribes remove the taste in our mouth from the candy that this world has to offer. Indeed, poison that this world has to offer that would distract us from what is eternal and substantial. Notice, the momentary gives way to the eternal. The tent gives way to the house. What we see by sight gives way to what we see by faith. And that is what we're looking for. Bellwether of future glory. Our sovereign God prescribes suffering also as a commendation for the servant-hearted. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, verse 2, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, Verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Verse 11, Paul closes this section by saying, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. How wide? Wide enough to receive the prescription of our sovereign God who would give us something like suffering to endure as a commendation for the servant-hearted. Commendation means what is recommended, what is verified. Why should someone listen to you? You have a testimony of a relationship with Christ that's changed your life.
But the unbeliever has testimony of any number of relationships that they would say have done the same. What makes yours different? Well, has their relationship been fraught with suffering and yet endured? Has a relationship that they find satisfaction, contentment, and hope in been one that has brought them by the power of the one they are in relationship with through thick and thin, through highs and lows, hardships, afflictions, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger? Most likely no. Indeed, every case, and ultimately so, any relationship outside of those built on Christ alone fail and fade. None of them is equipped with the armor necessary to endure this kind of trial. But by the purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and Holy Spirit, and genuine love that's evidenced in us under these conditions, the world can see a commendation of the servant-hearted. Imagine for a moment You're witnessing to someone who says you're an idiot every day you do. Yet you still take every opportunity obediently to bring them the message of the cross when there's that opportunity for another phone call. How are you doing? Or you recognize they're at a low. If that person has made you, done their best to make you feel stupid every time you've brought the message of the cross, when you bring it on your 23rd, 24th, however many, God knows, times, and they say, I think I'm finally ready for you to take me out to coffee and tell me more. When that person finally places their faith in the Lord, they can see in as many times as they've rejected you, better reason to follow Christ with all their heart. They've seen one who's been forgiven much and knows how to forgive. They see one who operates on a different set of ethical principles, rights and values than what this world has. Hey, if you do me wrong, that's it. You know, I might give you two strikes, might even give you three, but number three, you're out. You know, trust is something that is earned, and you've broken trust, and we'll see. You know, the world is very cynical in its relationships, and if they're broken, they don't have endurance to hang around. But the believer has only to think, how long did Christ suffer with me as an indolent, petulant, rebellious sinner caught in the depravity of my own nature that spit on his face, that crucified his hands and feet? We need only to remember the patience of God with us in order for us to be patient with others so that whatever affliction, hardship, and calamity, and imprisonment, riot, labor, sleepless nights, or the principled equivalent, a relationship with an unbeliever might bring us in our enduring those conditions, the world might find the commendation of a servant. They are assaulted, yes, but they are not destroyed, remember? They have a ready defense in the fruit of the Spirit we see in this section. They can endure because of what the Spirit is working through from the inside. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine faith, truthful speech, and knowledge of God. There is an assault, yes, on the believer. But there is a defense. It is the fruit of the Spirit. There is also, ultimately, a vindication. We are treated in this life as dishonored. But in the eyes of the Lord, those who are downtrodden and made fun of and persecuted here, blessed are they, our Lord says, the opening phrases of the Sermon on the Mount, 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, dishonored here, but given a crown of glory in the next life, one for us to cast as an offering before the throne of the Lamb that was slain. Through slander here, but praise from the Almighty, a smile from heaven, if not a sneer from the earth. We are treated as impostors, but yet we are true. God knows it. And He writes that assurance on our hearts, unknown and yet known, marginalized, unpopular in this life, yet known to our Heavenly Father and our brother, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Dying and yet behold, we live. Punished and yet killed. Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. Having nothing yet possessing everything. And I'm telling you, when the marriage supper of the Lamb unfolds, and everyone with the RSVP written in Christ's blood is assembled before the table, and we can't see the end because the throng there amassed by God's sovereign grace reaches into the furthest reaches of glory, there will not be a single person at that table who is a haggardly beggared, or any of the pejoratives that the world would want to attach us in this life. There are only those who will shine as Jesus Christ in His whitewashed robes of blood-drenched purity. And we will sing with the strength of a mighty waterfall praises to the Almighty in the throne room of glory forever and without end. And there will be a vindication for His people. But in the meantime, the suffering that we endure is commendation for the servant-hearted. Also, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a signal of inspirational affections. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, That as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, excel in this act of grace also. And here we see that the inspiration of the church of Macedonia, where though they were under affliction, it says a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty We're an inspiration to Paul and through Paul to the Corinthian church and through Paul's writings to every church who holds precious the word of God, even today. I mentioned to you the picture of the martyr's memorial that I have in my mind as a signal, as a representative of the inspirational affections of one who loves Christ so much that they hold tightly to him to the very end. This is the witness and the testimony of those who have suffered in this life, yet do so joyfully with overcoming and surpassing power. They are strategically positioned to testify to others and to encourage them. This church provided Paul a positive illustration in his sermon. I mean, that is quite the claim to fame right there, is it not? All to the glory of God, of course. 
But what if we, had we been a church back then, what if we had been so moved by the Holy Spirit to be faithful and obedient under afflictions that the Macedonian church endured, and then we show up as an illustration in the great Apostle Paul's sermon? Boy, that would be a testimony, wouldn't it? And so it is today. If the Holy Spirit is moving us towards obedience or even under affliction and poverty, we still count it great joy to overflow with the needs of the kingdom of God and the relief of the saints, then we end up being a positive illustration as church born out of time for Paul's message here. And so we have in our own lives something of the testimony of the martyr's memorial, the affections that Christ has nurtured for us when they're tested under suffering Afflicting conditions, it becomes inspirational for the rest of the church. In closing this morning and final point, our sovereign God prescribes suffering as a tempering grace. A tempering grace. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Definition of temper. Twofold. First of all, temper can mean to make less severe or extreme. And interesting and apparently contradictory, but I would argue that it's not. They could also to cause something to become harder or strong by heating or cooling. You think of steel being passed through the fire and then hammered or heated to just the right temperature. And under those conditions, the makeup of that steel becomes harder and more effective for its cause. This is the severe and extreme conditions that are necessary for the tempering of a tool that will be used for purposes it was otherwise not useful for. In Paul's record here, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, we see something of a very personal account of this principle in his own life. Paul says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. There was an aspect of suffering in the Apostle Paul's life that served as a tempering grace. This tempering grace, this thorn in his flesh as he described it, made less severe or extreme what might be described as the pride or the conscious awareness of self that would otherwise be a distraction and a hindrance or steal from the glory of Christ in some way. To keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of revelations, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And so we see the tempering work of afflictions working in Paul's life to minimize his flesh, to keep things from competing with the name of Christ and his own confession and ministry. I think about this man often. It's interesting. I don't think of Paul as one 
who would advertise himself. Nothing of the sort. Though he was commendable and he commended himself, something about this book is very interesting. When Paul defended himself, it somehow came out as defending Christ. I was talking with a pastor yesterday who was being accused of being defensive. And I had just fresh from this study and I told him, you know, it's not a question of being defensive, it's a question of what you are defending. And if you're defending Christ, your calling is to be defensive. Now Paul was in something of a catch-22. He didn't want to promote himself yet. He had to firmly establish the ground of his ministry and what he was saying was legitimate, not because he said it, but because Christ had declared that he had the responsibility to say it. And so Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, walking this very narrow path, divulges his faults, calls himself in some places the chief of sinners, and also reveals some of the behind-the-scenes stuff in his own soul that the Lord had sovereignly granted to temper him, so that he didn't become too elated, think too much of himself. A sovereign thorn was granted to keep him dependent, as he said in the first chapter, that he might learn that his dependency is on Christ and not on himself. But secondly, that definition of temper refers to something becoming harder or stronger by the heating or cooling, that is the extreme tempering conditions. We see this aspect of tempering also in the text, verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so it was in the weaknesses that Paul endured that God's power was tempered within him says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, not of himself again, but of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. And you see this Christocentric affirmation of Paul, even as he's testifying to things like power, strength, and growth. He says, the power of Christ might rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with what? The tempering influence, weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the process from point A to point B, to the point where we can demonstrate that surpassing power within, is also a process often fraught with sovereign, prescribed suffering. But no believer that I've given you just six reasons in summary, and it's not an exhaustive list, that whatever you're enduring today is by design, intentional, and the glories that it will bring you toward and cause you to rest your affections upon and remind you of their reality in the future are not to be compared with what Paul says is a slight momentary affliction right now. What a great hope for us. This is enough grace to get us through a car crash, even if it's our most beloved family member or relative. Marissa brought a story in morning prayer this morning, one that is so tragic, I don't even know if I want to know the details. I don't, in fact, where a man was killed in front of his young son for his faith, brutally murdered. What can bring you through something like that? Now, in the natural man, the psyche of just a small child, how can he possibly endure under the weight of that trauma? I know of only one answer. 
I know of only one answer. And it is what Paul is speaking to here. It is a power that is made perfect in weaknesses. It is the Spirit working on the inside that uses weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities to weaken our own resolve but strengthen Christ in us. That is the answer. The only answer is the tempering grace that gives meaning to the valley, no matter how deep it is. In closing and in transition to communion, I'll draw your attention to the verse that Seth opened us with from Isaiah 53. Turn there with me if you would. I would like to read together these familiar words that remind us that this pattern that Paul is laying out for growth within the Christian life and within the church at large is a pattern that was modeled for us chiefly in Jesus Christ and beyond compare. And in fact, the quintessential example of suffering by design is Jesus Christ on the cross. And this was not the will of man alone on display when he was convicted of crimes he did not commit. And when he was crucified at the hand of tyrants, no, read with me, Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Suffering by design. We read further, He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What is the question that immediately jumps to our minds when we hear of horrible suffering? I tell you, it's only natural in our human state in the flesh to ask why. Is it not? Why? Why? Isn't it interesting when we read the account of the passion of our Lord, when Christ knew, and it was evidence the anguish of the reality sinking into His consciousness of what He would soon endure on the cross as blood formed in the pores of His forehead. The question He asked the Father was not why, but if the cup could pass from Him. Jesus Christ, even in that moment of anguish, testified to a knowledge that this was by design. Jesus knew that this suffering was not a mindless, random chance event where he got an unlucky short end of the bargain by a wicked tyrant who misunderstood him. No, he knew that this was sovereignly prepared. It was a cup that means poured and set before Him, by the Almighty, on purpose for His will and intentions. This was suffering by design. And when the answer came that He alone was worthy to bear the cup, to drink the cup, so He did. And became the quintessential scriptural example of suffering by design. And this morning, 
we are reunited with this reality in communion. This mediation that Christ endured for us, the work of redemption. Through communion, we identify ourselves with it afresh, that is, with the suffering of Christ, His broken body and His shed blood. blood. And this morning, yes, even this morning, This truth, this reality etched upon our hearts and enabled through this means of grace can encourage and equip us to take up our cross no matter how penetrating the splinters and follow Christ, the suffering servant. And embrace Him and the sufferings that come with the Christian life no matter how deep the anguish, the affliction, the distress, the trials, the sorrows, the hardship, the betrayal, the testing, the discomfort, the tribulation, the difficulty, the heartache, the danger, the grief, the peril, the famine, the loneliness, or the sword. Because surely we know, and ultimately speaking, that nothing, nothing in this list, however long the world can invent it, will ultimately separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thus we know that every bit of suffering between now and glory eternal is by design and only paves the way in glory to get us there. Let's transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that you would quicken within us by the power of your Spirit through the sacrament of communion this morning a reality of what we partake in today, a communion, a fellowship, an association, an identity with, a relationship of fellowship beyond compare and forever was forged in the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord and is real and powerful and effective for the saving of every one of His own. And so we celebrate, we remember and proclaim today as we drink of the cup and as we eat of the bread That this, Lord Jesus, is evidence to us, inscribing indelibly on the soul of every believer who partakes, that the cup of the wrath of God was set before our Lord, and He drank it to the dregs so that we can be saved from hell eternal. And now suffering for us is just a bellwether of glory. And now what we endure, God, we can endure with joyful anticipation of what that blood purchased for us, our salvation and our glorification. We thank you that we can participate in this glorious miracle of redemption, all for Christ's namesake, all for his glory forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.